No BS Nutrition just baked a fresh loaf of bread in all of its gluten glory. This is a one-hour food fight against diet culture and its fake science messages. Instead, we're passionate about celebrating real wellness. I'm registered dietitian Hannah McGee. And I'm neuroscience PhD student Tarek Youssef, and this is No BS Nutrition. Boop, boop. Okay. Okay. Well, um, start us off. I'd love to start us off. Okay. Me, 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 me. (laughs) Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Early. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) I was really debating on whether or not I was going to give you a little birthday gifty on the pod, but because I'm very lucky to be coming over to see you this weekend. Yes. I thought maybe I would wait. Okay. That sounds good to me. I, and it, maybe it would have been fun live on the pod, but I don't That's know. That's okay. I, I was going to keep it. Yeah. That sounds good. But uh, still, I wish you happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. So you guys will probably be hearing this in <laughs> Way knows, past January or February, but my birthday is in November. <laughs> Currently, it's November 21st. My it's birthday's like on the 26th. The, it's like this race. Like we're catching up to real time. Yeah. Soon enough. Yeah, soon enough. We're going to catch up to you out yeah. there, listeners. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess. Um, oh yeah, you're doing the. By the way, this episode, I feel like I want. I wish we had like Chinese takeout. I wish we were sitting on the floor, that like with so a blanket, good. yeah, and a, and some hot cocoa. Because that's one the day, mood I'm in right now. Well, you know what? Once our <laughs> once the podcast takes off, um, really looking for a sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to invest in our own podcast equipment. I would love that, so that we can do that. We oh can just get together, God. and, and uh, people can just listen, open up their own takeout containers, yeah. and uh, listen along. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to sit in this red room. No, <laughs> just kidding. We love you, Halifax Public Library. We actually do. We really do. Yeah, thank you. It's amazing that they like offer all of this free stuff yeah, go to your local use. library you know what <laughs> i you know what i learned um i'm a big fan of chance the rapper yeah okay me too. and he started like when he was young and like in middle school and high school he would go to his like yeah. local public library in chicago okay. and they had a re- like recording studios oh, and I he would that. go and record and that's how like he would record his music oh like, god we're chance the rapper we're the next chance the rapper <laughs> Oh my God! Catch me on the Hot 100. <laughs> um, he does a cover of um, the Arthur theme song, and it, no way! Like, uh, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever heard in your I life. I want to hear it. Yeah, I'll play it for you after. We it's should so play good. that Listen as our People intro music. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get the rights. We need yeah. to get the rights. Anyway. <clears throat> oh gosh. I guess I should start off um, with my BS. Yes, of the week. let's hear it. So. My uh, okay, my BS. I'm just gonna say what it is, and mm-hmm. then we'll get into it. My BS of the week. Have you heard of pure wine filters? No. Okay. The other thing is the thing about BS of the week. I don't want to like give these people publicity. Right. You know what I mean. Yeah. So, I know what you mean. I, I'm not. Well, that's what I did last week with the medical media. I know. I but gave I them hope all this like, publicity. <laughs> for all of our following. listeners. <laughs> all of our listeners, go fall. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. So you pure wine filters. Okay. So. Actually, 
Maybe you should Google it to like look at their. Well, I have your I'm... notes. Oh yeah, okay. But I so didn't you can look see at it because I didn't. There. I wanted you to surprise oh, me, you so I didn't really surprised. look into it that much. So Pure Wine Filters is this product, and it's actually made by somebody who it has a PhD. I think it, it's a PhD in chemistry. Okay. And what they they were seeking to do was, I guess, create an experience for people drinking wine such that they. What I'm gathering from it, except the way that the website does it, they do it like they run around the topic because I think they don't really want to claim it outright. Okay. They're basically trying to get rid of hangovers. Okay. Is the whole deal. So they created this filter that you put in your wine glass or a filter that you put at the top of your wine bottle. Right. That filters out, like, one of the things that it's supposed to filter out apparently is histamines. Okay. Which are chemicals that interact with your immune system in order to trigger uh, immune responses. So you get inflammation Mm -hmm. and whatnot because your body's trying to like fight off whatever it detects as a foreign body. And the histamines kind of help uh, with that, um, with that uh, whole pathway of action. Right. So pure wine filters are, I have a bunch of problems with it. The first is that they talk about all these histamines and sulfites that are found in wine. And they their whole big thing is like, if you have a wine allergy, this is really helpful for you. Okay, so what could you be allergic to that's in wine? Maybe you have a really, really specific allergy to grapes. Maybe you have a sensitivity to alcohol. These are all true things. But uh, calling it a wine allergy? Yeah, I, no. I think that's actually what? like... I'm going to say, like, incorrect. Like, I don't, and even I if it's agree. true, I don't think it's as, like, widespread as they're saying it is. No. And the other thing is, like, the way they ad, the trouble I have is the way they advertise it is, like, their website says, imagine no more yeah. wine headaches. Only pure wine alleviates all of the most common side effects from drinking wine. Imagine no more wine headaches, congestion, skin flush, upset stomach, hangovers. So they advertise all this stuff that, like, People generally get from drinking, drinking but yeah. it's not because they necessarily have a no! quote, wine what allergy. The hell? No. And the other thing, the other problem I have with this is our filters are patented, proven, safe, and effective. So they have that listed on the website, but there's no double blind randomized control trial that yeah. used wine filters to see if people, if there was a true difference with using them or not using them on these side effects of drinking alcohol. Okay. At, and then a millionth problem that I have with the whole deal is they talk about all these sulfites and these histamines. And mm-hmm. it's true. Some people have a more of a propensity to getting um, some sort of negative side effects from drinking alcohol than other people because right. of whatever various individual yep. differences, true genetic polymorphisms. Um, but they talk about all this. But what they avoid talking about is that I think a lot of the headaches and hangovers and trouble that people get with wine it's not because it has sulfites and histamines. It's because there's alcohol in it that's dehydrating you. That's absolutely. My yeah. voice is getting so shrill because I'm you're so worked bad. up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree. When you like, drink alcohol, regardless of what else is in it, the alcohol dehydrates it's the your alcohol. body. It's not <laughs> anything that's in the wine. Like, sure, there might. Yeah, like you said, that you yeah. know, there may be the rare. You know, <laughs> some people might react differently to the sulfites, the histamines, whatever. But. The reason you're getting a hangover or a headache or whatever it is, is it's the alcohol. The dehydration gets rid of uh, water from different parts of your body. There's like a direct link with how that affects the the different 
um, tissues literally like around your head, around your brain, and mm -hmm. how they like contract and release. Look up. Yeah. If you don't know anything about meninges, look them up. Uh, that contri can contribute to headaches. Yep. Uh, it, it's not necessarily the histamines and the sulfites. It's the alcohol, I, which I think that would be. And they're not getting rid of the alcohol with these filters. Yeah. Anyway, so I have a problem with that. Next problem. <laughs> I feel like I have a laundry list of problems. Is that so they have these individual filters that you put in your wine glass. I think you have to stir it for like three minutes before you can even Fun. drink your wine. <laughs> Everyone yeah. wants to do that. Absolutely. Let me stir my wine. Stir your wine with this filter and then you can drink it. Or you use the thing that you put on, they have like on a, the bottle, on the bottle right. like a, a tap on the bottle. Almost like a Brita. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. But they're all one use. Oh, I that's know. wasteful. It's, okay, wasteful, but also like money grab. Right, because you just have to keep buying more. You have to keep buying more for like every glass of wine. And then if it actually did what it said it did, maybe I would, maybe I, I wouldn't have such a problem with it. But right. because it's a product that I don't think you necessarily need and they're, you pay money for. Yeah. And it's like, a, I think nutrition has to do with anything that you're ingesting. So oh, yeah, I, I totally. would say that this is a nutrition adjacent, if not just I like agree. a nutritional product, yep. the, the way they're marketing yep. it. Then it's like just a money grab for people. A better tip would be to just like pace yourself while you're drinking alcohol drink and water. drink a glass of water yeah. in between each in between each drink that you're having. Totally, I agree. Um, okay, I have a couple things. Me too. Okay, <laughs> just kidding. You. Um, <laughs> one, where did you find this? Okay, like yeah. where did you come across this? Uh -huh. uh, I, so the first time that I came across it, I think they actually sponsored somebody on YouTube. I'm not going to say the name no of way. the YouTube channel because oh, I, I actually really, I rather like some of the the content that this channel makes. And this kind, I was kind of disappointed because I was mm. like, you took the money from this product. Right, right. Like, by the way, like we're we're obviously like very interested in nutrition. Like I'm not taking a sponsorship from something I don't believe in. Yeah. So this is what I, I want to mention about influencers and sponsorships like nothing frustrates me more than seeing like I don't want I'm not bashing influencers like I'm in that you know content creation space and I have a lot of friends who are you know social media influencers um, and one thing that does frustrate me is when influencers promote products that have these claims like whether it's a wine filter like the, anything like nutrition related a wine filter um supplements like probiotics or um vitamins and things like that and they're promoting them and they're saying they're they're saying this product does this 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 like they're repeating all the claims that obviously the brand has asked them to repeat and that's what they're paying them to say and then people are taking that information and being like wow this product must be so great because this influencer is like right. promoting it or they're <clears throat> vetting it and it's like but they have no like these influencers with no background in right. science or nutrition or anything like that they have no idea whether or not this product actually works right they might say they've taken it for a month or something like that but obviously they're not going to say like, it doesn't work if they're being paid all of those to talk about it or whatever the debloating those things and just yeah. like there's so many there's like so many vitamin companies out there these days and yes they, I know I've seen like they have some like dietitian influencers promoting them as well but you really have to be critical when you see an influencer promoting something because 
you one it's just like when you're reading research you have to look at the sponsorships and 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 bias and and right and and i don't think we do enough of that so i don't know i just wanted to express that frustration no i'm glad you said it makes me kind of not not angry but just like afraid for all of the people consuming this information from people who don't really know better and don't really know what you know has to go into creating a really credible probiotic supplement or a really sure you know a multivitamin or something like that right and the trouble is that it kind of creates fear-mongering like um maybe uh, i'm like i would imagine a bunch of people would see this filter and say oh i must have a wine allergy and then right. go on to like i don't know waste their money or yeah, like i oh i have those symptoms i must be allergic to wine and that happens all the time like with anything whether it's grains or wine or whatever it is yeah um, exactly okay i have one other thing i want to mention i have seen not a like kind of a product in line with this before also being promoted by influencers um it's a it's some sort of i think it's called something detox like d i don't know it's like a certain letter combination and then detox and it's supposed to be like i think it's a pill that you take before you drink okay and it is supposed to prevent you from getting a hangover what a waste of money do you so you think that like well i I have no idea i don't i don't really know anything about it but the claim is that the claim is that it like neutralizes or like breaks down what's the like the alcohol well what's the when we when we break down alcohol what's the um ethanol like byproduct no it's like acid something i don't know though i thought you might know it like acetyl alcohol that's it or acetyl acetyl something it's like when our bodies break down alcohol what the products are okay one of them is what like is the toxin that causes hangovers whatnot that's like bad for us um supposedly this pill or this whatever i think supplement pill or something that you're supposed to take before you drink like neutralizes it or gets rid of it so that I mean, you in don't... my mind really it's just like if you're having alcohol you probably have clean water available in most cases yeah drink a glass of water in between each drink it's a really you know healthy and cheap way to avoid those other and if you're really effects. trying to avoid a hangover don't drink so yeah, much drink. <laughs> like if you really don't want a hangover <laughs> that's the other thing don't is drink like that much. I, I this almost to me like promotes binge drinking because they're saying let's get it rid does. of all they're the like, negative drink, effects drink 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 but just take this and you'll be fine which by the way hangovers are not the only negative effects you can get from yeah, alcohol like, exactly like you don't want Okay, so this anyway. thing is called DHM Detox. No days wasted. I don't want to. Like, if you put detox into your product name, like you're immediately eliminating me out of a like as a potential consumer, right? Because yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I know that has nothing to do with anything you're doing. Yeah. Anyway, that's my piece of the week. I wanted to. Yeah, I'm now. I'm so. I feel like we could do a whole episode on this. Oh, we could absolutely. I also feel like we could do a whole episode on allergies and oh, like sure. yeah, yeah. what like true allergies are and like the physiological like responses that accompany really allergies good. and then like what social media talk tells us about allergies and what we could be allergic to when really like maybe those allergies don't actually exist or Absolutely. like um anyways I'm, i've learned a little bit about that and i'd love to learn more yeah now we are moving on to the main topic of this 
week's episode, which is a continuation of last week's episode Mm -hmm. um, on intuitive eating. So we didn't realize last week that (laughs) we were going to be so into our discussion (laughs) about intuitive eating um, and what it is. and, and, um, And we really didn't get a chance to talk about you know, the science behind it and, and look at, you know, how it's been studied and, yeah. and what the results say and things like that. So Absolutely. we kind of want to chat about that today. And I know, Tarek, you have a, a slew of, um, <laughs> I have a couple of things I thought would be interesting to talk at. about. Yeah. And I'm excited to talk about it too. I mean, the, the trouble with clinical science in general, like, so, that is experimental science that focuses on human health. Yeah, is that there rarely is. It's really really difficult to do. There rarely are in, enough studies that show conclusive evidence of any sort of. I mean, even drugs sometimes. Yeah, because we can't get enough people to join the studies. We can't follow them for long enough. Uh, or maybe it's like a really minute difference that's actually occurring and right. it's really hard to track. So I, I don't know if you folks want to follow along at home <laughs> and <laughs> try to Bring open up, up some of these scientific yeah. articles. Um, but really, it, um, I, I don't want to be boring about it. Obviously, we're just going to have a casual conversation. No, around, around I want to hear, yeah, yeah, though, exactly, like so. you talk about the studies and, you know, you found these and, and I want to hear about them. Yeah, absolutely. I only got a chance to kind of briefly um, peruse through. So And the other um, thing is... I'm, Obviously not an expert in the field. I don't happen to be an expert in any field currently, except for uh, my cats. <laughs> could talk I'm about an them expert forever. in Spooky and Baxter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They'll be on the pod next week, special guest. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I was really, really interested uh, reading these studies because, um, I don't know, it's fun to read something that uh, is outside what I study and also something that I'm quite passionate about. Um, so yeah, so the, the first thing that I want to bring up was actually, maybe we could talk about how intuitive eating is managed more clinically. So when you go see a psychologist who mm-hmm. is maybe helping treat you for some sort of disordered eating behaviors or associated um, patterns, um, what they might do if they were somebody who focuses on intuitive eating as a strategy for moving forward to develop better behaviors. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, what psychologists tend to do is use uh, tools called psychometric scales or questionnaires. Uh, And maybe some people listening have even filled out some of these scales Mm -hmm. or questionnaires before. Um, They're basically just, you know, you might do a BuzzFeed quiz (laughs) that gives you uh, a score or tells you which character in Harry Potter you are. Um, A psychometric scale asks you a bunch of questions. Uh, Maybe you might rate your feelings towards them on a scale of 1 to 10, or you might just say yes or no to different questions. Right. Um, And then you get a result uh, that helps, uh, you know, uh, a clinician make as much of an objective uh, decision about where you are in your health um, uh, as they can. Rather than just asking you a series of random questions, here's a set of questions that uh, the the scientific community at large has decided is valid right. uh, and we can use to judge a certain criteria on. So, for example, mm. anxiety or depression, you might receive questions such as like, uh, how alone do you feel? Uh, uh, how ostracized from the world? How how scared do you feel about this sort of experience? Yeah. Uh, do, how is your sleep? How uh, are you eating differently? These sorts of questions, of course, they'd be asked in a much more systematic way and 
you would then go on to get a score. So that reminds me of, I remember I did some training in like a diabetes clinic Mm -hmm. and one of the things that we, in an initial assessment that we always had to um, go over with the patients was a PAHQ oh, yeah. nine, and then a, if you know, depending on the personal answers, health questionnaire, yeah, so you'd go on to the PHQ ten or twelve. Yeah. I can't remember. Um, and it was basically a, like a mental health yeah. questionnaire, you'd, and it was questions like that, like I don't know, do you feel like I don't remember what they were. No, I course. should remember, but, but they were like that, like just yeah. kind of like. Um, in general, how do you feel about this or how happy do you feel or how, right. you know, um, you know, do you feel supported by or do you have support? Things like that. There was just like of questions course. that. And that's better than maybe having. It can be better, I will say, than having kind of a free flowing conversation. Yeah. This is more uh, stringent, I guess, of mm-hmm. a way to get people's mm-hmm. information. So then I guess it maybe it's, it was a natural development that um, in 2013 it was actually before that but it was finally refined in 2013 to what it is now i believe uh, there was an intuitive eating scale that was cre- uh, that was created such that counselors could kind of administer it to to their patients um, and see where they are on the intuitive eating track. So, you know, the Neat. things that we were talking about last episode, uh, where you are in listening to your body, where you are in your uh, eating behaviors, what kind of stigma you hold towards them, and so on. Yeah. So it's this questionnaire. It was developed in order to to get a gauge of how in tune people are with their hunger, their satiety cues, and how that plays into their eating. And the motivation behind it all partly was that... The focus in a lot of nutrition research has been kind of like identifying disordered eating yeah, rather than identifying adaptive behaviors. So mm. there was a lot of questionnaires about like the disordered eating behaviors and not, a, and not any questionnaires about like, okay, what are the actual like good things that you're doing in your eating? Right. right? So this was kind of a, this was the first scale, I guess, that was kind of looking to see how adaptive are you at eating rather than asking the question, how maladaptive are you at Interesting. eating? Interesting, yeah. So they kind of wanted this this different scale to, to add to the uh, you know the list of scales that they had available to them nice. because they thought intuitive eating was a, a good way to focus uh, on, a good way to focus on better adaptive behaviors for patients who needed help with right. their disordered eating. Right, um, So... Just to give a little bit of a refresher, maybe a background, those who eat intuitively don't necessarily ascribe words like bad or good to different foods like we were talking about in the last episode. And they know that food, you know, is, you know, going to enhance your body's functioning. It's going to provide nutrition. And they're also more in tune with the cues that their body produces um, about satiety and about Mm -hmm. hunger. Mm -hmm. So... This all probably leads to more healthier outcomes. Uh, and I have two examples later of studies uh, that talk about those outcomes. Awesome. Uh, and really what they focus on is, um, you know, body satisfaction and the, and the emotions uh, that go along with being satisfied with your body. And I, I think that's really interesting. And I think it's something that people don't really talk about with respect to nutrition enough. It's like, let's focus on our satisfaction with our bodies. and Because they're so intertwined. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and rather we only focus on, and I think it's important, the health part, yeah. like the, the biological metabolic health part. Yep. But I think it's really, really crucial to focus on 
the body satisfaction part, and we kind of had this conversation over text the other day. I think people who don't talk about it probably come from a place of privilege where they've always felt satisfied with their body. Right. Or, yeah, exactly. Um, you and know, there hasn't been that pressure to change their bodies. Exactly. Um, and because I, I think like the minute, the minute that you, and I, I don't know where this comes from, if it's diet culture or just, you know, the knowledge that like what we eat can affect our body shape and size like you know just learning that in school or or just wherever um but like the minute that you feel some sort of dissatisfaction to your body or you want to change your body chances are like the first thing you're going to look at is food like or exercise like you know those are so to yeah to think that the two aren't like are can be totally like removed from one another are is I don't know. I, it's not and really right. It's irresponsible. I mean, yeah. I'll, research is subject. Research, as objective as people claim it is, is subjective because it's always done from the lens of the researcher, right? So, if a lot of research are disproportionately white males with a lot of privilege, th- that's maybe associated with more body satisfaction than yeah. you know, let's say people who aren't men. Then yeah. research is not going to focus on the things that. The, their yeah. lens doesn't see. Yeah. So I'm very. I mean, I'm very happy to say. That, so this study was done by uh, uh, Tracy Tilka and Ashley Kroon Van Deist from Ohio State and Texas A and M University, uh, who refined the intuitive eating scale nice. um, and published it in 2013. So obviously they're coming from a different lens, possibly. And, yeah. You know, they're. I, I think it. It really adds to the literature and it uh, in a really positive way. I yeah. Think, because it's bringing. And I also, I want to, I want to mention, I want to just jump back to the the thing you said about privilege and, and the people who are maybe not asking those questions or recognizing that body satisfaction, um, you know, has a role in the way we eat. And, um, the last couple of weeks I've seen, like, there's been a lot of critique and, and it's not necessarily new, but I just feel like in the last couple of weeks I've been noticing a lot of critique of, the health, like we kind of talked about this, the intuitive eating, Hmm. um, you know, principles and, um, health at every size kind of movement and, and anti-diet dietitians. There's been a lot of critique and a lot of the people doing the critiquing are privileged. They're, they're white males or they're, they're thin males or, you know what I mean? And And they haven't, they probably haven't experienced that body dissatisfaction sure, yeah. um, or stigma related to their weight and, and their size and being told to lose weight and things like that. And, and it's just, I, it's just something that I've noticed. I'm sure they're not the only people critiquing yeah, it, yeah. but they're the ones that I've seen in the last few weeks critiquing it very openly and um, publicly. I mean, I, I would just invite those people to, if they so believe in, I'm assuming they're saying that they want to find something that's evidence-based and that's yep. science-backed. If they so believe in that, well, look at the literature. The literature, unfortunately, lacks a lot of research on these topics. So mm. we need to do more research. Mm-hmm. And this is one way of getting started, you know, yeah. by by looking into the studies. I mean, there's not very many clinical outcome-based intuitive eating studies, but that doesn't mean it's not something that we can continue to research and continue to build upon. Yeah. 
And I think those critiques, yeah, those people really need to check their privilege. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I agree. Anyway, so um, one of the things that uh, was mentioned in the study is that uh, people who eat without uh, those sort of without the the stigma that they ascribe to different foods like good or bad are people who are going to be less likely to binge. Yep. You know, they're less likely to experience guilt. Um, and they're going to be more likely to eat because uh, they have physical hunger rather than because they're emotional, for example, or they're bored. Right. Even. So this yeah. was something that was cited in the study. Um, and I think probably for... so because of like copyright reasons, I can't list the whole scale right now. Um, okay. I, I believe... I was going to ask you to kind of... I probably can't, but I, I was or... going to... Um, I thought it might be fun to just share a few of the, yeah, the questions yeah, that would be good. Yeah. I think I probably... Yeah, I think it probably wouldn't be allowed to share the whole thing. Okay. But um, so question... These are questions... I mean, maybe even listening to this, people can ask themselves, maybe allow themselves to reflect on uh, their own food-associated behavior. So yeah. one of the questions, for example, is... Or, so it's not a question, it's a statement, and then you say you whether say, or not like, you agree, agree with it. Agree, strongly agree, exactly. disagree, right. So one of them is, uh, I get mad at myself for eating something unhealthy, right? And that's just as written. And I believe it's written that way, using the word unhealthy, because they're trying to just, you know, they're putting it there, and the person going through the questionnaire is reading that word as they define it. Yeah, right? for sure. What There's they no consider to be unhealthy. Like it's, what, exactly. it's the subjective. There's no associated, of... you know, long form essay that they read about what's health healthy and, and what's nutrition. Not. And <laughs> that's great because I, th the term healthy or unhealthy is so absolutely right. like subjective. Like right, right. I think anyways, you know, what's healthy for me might not be necessarily what someone else considers healthy. Yeah. I mean, there's an overall band of, you know, what we consider to be nutritious. Sure, but yeah. We're, I mean, just because something has a different makeup of macronutrients doesn't mean that it's automatically unhealthy. Right, exactly. Um, so I, I think even like a year ago, maybe a few months ago, I would have agreed very strongly with that statement. I get mad at myself for eating something yeah. unhealthy because I considered, I, I really like, my big change personally what is so recent like i'm really trying to walk the walk and because it's better for me i mean yeah and better for the people around me if i'm not spewing kind of diet culture yeah. things all the time yeah uh but i'm happy to say i i definitely disagree with that that claim a lot more now mm -hmm. that's good yeah absolutely yeah, i'm proud of you thank you <laughs> <laughs> another one is uh i trust my body to tell me when to eat mm, that's a that's a good one. Um, I feel like a lot of people, I feel like we get so wrapped up in, in trying to figure out what we should and shouldn't eat and, yeah. and when we should and shouldn't eat and how much that um, we lose touch with that very easily or a lot of people do. Absolutely. Yeah. And just, I mean, I still struggle with this because the scheduling of my days, I mean, if, if I know I'm not going to be around food or like not near food because of like whatever I'm doing some sort of work or I'm traveling. Yeah. I still struggle with that. Like, oh, I get kind of scared even. Like, right. oh, should I eat before, eat a bunch before because I know I'm going to get hungry yeah. or should I wait till I get hungry but yeah. I'm not going to have food with me? I think that that um, 
I've talked about that before with clients and um, just like on social media that sometimes intuitive eating isn't, and I don't want to go on a big tangent here, but it's it's not um, necessarily just eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. Right. It's also like having that mindfulness to kind of think, and, and it's also kind of encompasses, you know, the gentle nutrition principle and, and like just looking out for your body too. Like right. you can kind of say like, oh, I'm going to be working through lunch today but i have 10 yeah. minutes here it's only 11 a.m but maybe i should grab something to eat even though i'm not that hungry just right. to kind of tide me over or you know you're going out and you're going to be out all afternoon like should i pack some snacks things like that like just kind of right um you know you know you're not going to be able to eat later so you eat now even though you're not hungry or right. um you know things like that um so it's not the intuitive eating principles aren't necessarily like hard and fast rules right. they're definitely not rules um and i don't know it's just like a self-care i think that's I how that. it's defined is it's a self-care eating um framework i love that and yeah so anyways i just wanted to make that note I, I another one is i trust my body to tell me what to eat yeah which i think a lot of people probably struggle with a that. lot of people don't do that yeah i um you know what's funny and and um, sorry, I just want to say the next one that you have there, because what I'm going to say kind of ties into that too. Yeah, yeah. The next one is I have forbidden foods that I don't allow myself to eat. Yeah. And and I think that one is something that people struggle with too. Um, last night, I went to um, a class at a gym with a couple friends. And they were one girl actually I have, I have met recently and the other were kind of old friends. We lost touch for a little while mm -hmm. and we're, um, you know, kind of hanging out a little bit again. And um, I was chatting with them and one of the one of the friends gave me um, this like snack, a bag of like this like chocolate almond like clusters okay. that um, her dad had got for her. Um, By the way, I'm obsessed with those. They're from Costco. Have you had them? Well, no, but I've had them from like other places. Right. Yeah. I, I, it was the first time I tried them. They're really good. But yeah. like she was saying like she was trying to get rid of the bags because her dad had bought three of them. And like she was like, I can't have them in the house. Like okay. She was just like, I will eat them all. Yeah. And like then she asked me on site. She's like, did you love those like chocolate almond clusters? And I was like, yeah, like I liked them. They're really good. But like then her and and. And the other girl like went on to say like, oh my God, they're so good. Like I can't, I'll just eat the whole bag in yeah. one sitting. Like I can't keep them around. And I right. was like, I don't have that. I didn't say anything. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I was like thinking, I don't have that experience. Because like, you weren't restricting I, them before. Yeah. And yeah. I don't have this like, this perception in my head that that's, you know, off limits or forbidden to be eaten freely. Yeah. And so like I've had, you know, when i Usually it's in the evening, like when I want a little snack, like I might have a bowl of popcorn and some of those chocolate almond clusters yeah. and I'm not like compelled to go back and get more and keep eating them. Sure. And so that just reminded me like trusting your body, how telling you how much to eat and having forbidden foods. Like it just, that just reminded me how common it is. Like Absolutely. every day in conversation, you hear people saying, I can't keep that in the house or I, you know, it's addicting. I can't stop eating it. And, and, I'm and it like, goes without saying, like, it takes time to get to a place where yeah, you feel that yeah. comfortable. But, like, it is possible. Like, it yeah, can be possible. For sure. Um, anyways, I just wanted to make that note. I thought it was kind of funny yesterday when I was like, I can't relate. Like, I was just like, yeah, I, yeah. like, they sit in my cupboard and I, and, and obviously... When I want them, I'll have yeah, them. Yeah. And I've had to do a lot of work to get to that place. Like, absolutely. I absolutely was in a place before where... 
you know, I felt like I couldn't keep certain foods around or in front of me because I would just keep eating them. And I, I think it also brings up the point that like, even though we may not be necessarily struggling with disordered eating or, um, dieting, those disordered kind of thoughts or like having forbidden foods or not being able to trust your body is so common. Like it's, it's almost like people think that those things are normal. Like it's normal to have forbidden foods and it's normal to feel like you can't regulate how much you eat of a certain food and things like that. Um, anyways. Absolutely. And I think that goes into a, a really good point about the science behind this is that unfortunately, because of the fact that it's like individual behavior driven and of of course, like a result of various motivations, extrinsic, yeah. intrinsic experiences you've had with other yeah. people, bullying at school. Like, right. it's very difficult to measure these things objectively, scientifically, oh, right. and to move forward. And that's why we need to do more of this research, yeah. you know, to actually understand all this more and understand food-associated behaviors and understand what can help people move away from disordered eating. Yeah, uh, And I think this is a really good step forward, having a questionnaire that... Um, has been validated by a couple of people. Yeah. Uh, and that I, I believe, and I'm sorry, I forget now, but I believe it. why I chose the next two studies in particular is because they use the intuitive eating scale as an outcome I measure. I see. Okay. Um, um, so is I this mean, one from, uh, sorry, tw- yeah. was this one from 2019? The the scale is from 2013. 2013. Yeah. This, um, this one was published. I read a book. It was actually written by a dietitian. Um, it's pretty popular in the kind of non-diet intuitive eating space. It's called Body Kindness mm-hmm. and it's by Rebecca Scritchfield. We can link to her yeah. um, in the show notes, but she's also kind of a non-diet intuitive eating dietitian. And um, she wrote this book called Body Kindness. And it's all, it's really about doing, it's what well, it's in the title, like doing everything that you do kind of as a way to be kind to your body rather okay. than as a way to lose weight or as a way to change your body or whatever you're doing, you know, you're eating well, you're exercising, you're doing all those things out of body kindness and, and resting and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that she talks about in the chapter about eating, she talks about intuitive eating and then she, but she also talks about, you know, your relationship with food. And she has a very similar kind of, she, she calls it like a quiz, but it's like a scale, it's like a scale like this. Um, and she just gets you to do it on your own at mm. home. And it's, it, there's questions like that. Like, you know, I feel right. guilty when I eat you know, unhealthy food or, right. um, you know, I have these rules around what I should and shouldn't eat and things like that. And it kind of just gets you thinking about, you know, your relationship with food right. and, and if there's things that maybe aren't so healthy about your relationship with food or so normal about your right. relationship with food. So I love that. Yeah. Oh, I just saw you add that note in. I was yeah. like, whoa, you had, you had Rebecca Scritchfield's name in there? But <laughs> no, I no just you just it. added it. So we don't okay. And, you know, that's the thing is like, you know, this stuff isn't perfect. Like making a questionnaire isn't perfect. You're not going to be able to accurately diagnose every single person, you know, with whether or not they have disordered eating mm-hmm. behaviors uh, or how adaptive their behaviors are. But what it does allow is that, let's say you're a counselor and you, you get a patient and you administer the scale. It allows for something um, which the, the studies that I'm going to talk about take advantage of is a test-retest method. So the mm. first time that they come see you, they fill out the scale. You see how adaptive they are. You send them off with whatever sort of um, uh, paradigms or behavioral changes that you've told them about um, or 
I don't know, whether or not they need some sort of like more clinical interventions. You send them off. They come back a few months later. You do the test again. You see if their score has changed. Right. That's kind of one way that... I love that. Yeah. yeah. And that's test kind of retest. one way that, you know, science, especially psychological uh, science that, you know, takes advantage of... Uh, of questionnaires uh, does things in order yeah, to see how people's outcomes and, improve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's something, you know, and we can critique the scale. We can critique the results that uh, come off of it. Um, and we can do so with some of the studies I'm going to talk about now. Um, oh, also I, I added it in my notes. I want to say if people are very in tune with the, the scientific research around nutrition um, and are very interested in sharing their thoughts or sharing some studies, please send us a DM on Twitter or Instagram because yeah. I'd be very, very interested in um, getting a sense of what people are reading if they're in that world. Yeah, uh, I would love that too. Please share some authors with me. I, you know, I don't know the big players in the field right now. You know, so I, I'm still getting into it. <laughs> I'm still getting into it. So, and I'm very motivated to learn more about it. So um, please send that information to us. Yeah, awesome. I would love that. Okay, so... Um, the first experimental study I want to talk about is from 2019. It was published in the Journal uh, of Health Psychology. Okay. I don't know how good that journal is. By the way, there's a lot of things we can talk about with respect to scientific research. Uh, journals have certain reputations, and I don't know the reputations of these journals. Um, <laughs> Why say this about literally like everything on the podcast, but we should do an episode about like just all about research oh, and like sure. just teaching people how to kind of you think um, people would be interested in that i think so okay. like i think yeah. like kind of like for the lay person like how to i would love to do that how to break down research and figure out what's a good you know what's a good study what's not you've what... like opened up pandora's box like and, all i no, want to do is knowledge translation not like, only <laughs> do i want to like teach other people about it, but i'm not great at that either and i said that to you the other day like i want you to sit down with me and go through that. a study with me and like we can do it live on the podcast. yeah <laughs> like i think it would be really helpful for people because there's so much out there and and even like dietitians we're not always i mean there's some that are really great but we're not always that great at knowledge translation or um you know, another you know, thing is um, figuring out what's what, and so I think that would be great. I would love to do that, <laughs> and, and I understand too that um, a way to make this more accessible would be to choose articles that are open source and that people would be able to reach without right. a, a paywall. Sure, right. Unfortunately, the the studies I've chosen, I don't think are okay. Um, no, I'm, that's fine. I'm sorry for that for the people listening. Uh, you know, the literature isn't as chock full with these kinds of studies such that they're so ubiquitous that one of them might end up in okay. uh, uh, an open um, an open source journal. Right. Um, yeah, how it works for people listening is uh, an author will do a study, they'll write it up, and they'll kind of try to pitch it to different journals. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, they'll try to sell it basically to different journals, and journals will either accept or reject, and you just move on to the next journal. If you Neat. get rejected, you'll get reviewed. You might have to make some changes. So, so like there's – ow, I just hit this drum <laughs> set beside me. Is that what that is? Um, yeah. What was I going to say? Oh, so there's like – you know, there's obviously well-known, like, well-respected yes. journals. So, like, it's right. a big deal if they want to, like, buy your Absolutely. study. Okay, I got yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that we use the word buy. But I think you actually pay to publish. You have to... You have to oh, you have, you have to pay. To, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's, it depends. Sometimes, uh, there, 
I think some open source you don't pay, some you do. But uh, I'll, I'll say moving forward, I'll try my best to find open source publications so that people at home right can, can kind also of follow, follow along. along. Right. Um, okay. So after all that said, away. So this published in <laughs> Journal of Health Psychology in 2019. Um, it's from Switzerland, from the do do do. Uh, Lausanne University Hospital, Switzerland. Uh, so a bunch of, I think probably, I don't know their credentials, but probably a bunch of clinicians did this study. Um, maybe some of them also have PhDs. Um, but it, okay. it's by Kwanza and colleagues. Their name is Dan Yadu Kwanza. Um, the the study is called Intuitive Eating is Associated with Improved Health Indicators at One Year Postpartum in Women with Gestational Diabetes wow. Mellitus. So uh, I thought this was interesting to look at because it was something that used intuitive eating um, as a measure to correlate an outcome associated with a, uh, something clinical, in mm -hmm. this case, uh, gestational diabetes. Um, so what were the health indicators well, oh how did they measure diabetes yeah like i'm just curious it says associated with improved health indicators so what were yeah. those indicators absolutely so i'll get into that partly okay, they sorry. looked at no no no. <laughs> <laughs> i'm <laughs> jumping the gun partly they looked at um uh fasting glucose yep so your fasting sugar those of you who have diabetes you know what that is yes. um uh, and they looked at metabolically they looked at something called uh, hba1c so that's so your hemoglobin a1c exactly your blood actually links to sugar when it's in excess in your bloodstream, as you know. Um, so your A1C is an average over three months. Oh, okay. Thank yeah. you. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's what it's like the amount of sugar in your blood that's like linked to your blood, um, like you said, over a three month period. It's an right. average over three months. Yeah. And what I learned is that when it's in excess in your <clears throat> bloodstream, that can be indicative of diabetes. Yeah. That's, or, that's yeah. a big um, indicator. Um you know, that number. Um, I'm so psyched that it's you who's here in this room with me because I can learn so much from you about this stuff. I can learn so much from you. I'm right. learning so much already. Okay. So uh, I, I kind of broke up the different studies into three different things. Why did they do this, this study? What did they find? And why is this significant? So I thought that maybe this is a good way moving yeah, forward for good. us to talk yeah, about I studies. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, and I'll say very briefly, uh, most of the people... Um, who went through this study, the, the actual participants um, who were being uh, looked at for postpartum uh, diabetes and gestational diabetes probably identifies women. I, I'll just say mm -hmm. I know not everybody who has, who gives birth necessarily identifies yep. as a woman. So if I slip up in the future, please forgive me. Um, uh, but, but they called them women in the study. So I'm going to use the word that they use in the study. Okay. Um, so those who have gestational diabetes often have uh, atypical weight gain um, as well as weight retention, uh, and they might even end up getting diabetes past their pregnancy into the postpartum period. Yes. Um, so this can lead to kind of um, insulin resistance, um, worsening insulin resistance mm -hmm. even, and that can result in uh, diabetic symptoms that stay with you. So they maintain through... Uh, uh, throughout the postpartum period yeah. and you end up getting a breakdown of the function of your pancreas. And of course, uh, that's just like a feed forward cycle, more insulin resistance, uh, that, worse diabetic symptoms and so on. Yeah, And you can probably tell us more about that. Yeah. Than so, I, I mean, gestational diabetes 
like like you said, um, it puts you at a higher risk for like developing type two diabetes right. down the road. And what you get is uh, alterations in the signaling of hormones of things like our satiety. So you know that kind of feeds into how in tune we can right, be with our right. bodies uh, that contribute uh, to various changes uh, that lead to increased risk of diabetes and therefore you know managing your sugar levels can be you know is really of critical importance during mm-hmm. pregnancy and yes. in the postpartum period if you're somebody who has gestational, gestational diabetes, diabetes. Yeah. Um, of course there are various various uh, outcomes that are associated with type 2 diabetes that can be really detrimental to people's health yeah uh, and obviously you know why did they do the study you know it's really important to maybe find a way to try to avoid going down sure. that path yeah. for, for those people with gestational diabetes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, they mentioned in the study that various interventions have previously been implemented in order to kind of manage sugar, manage atypical weight gain, to kind of prevent diabetic symptoms uh, presenting down the road in the postpartum period, but they haven't really panned out effectively. What I mean by that is like, you know, the results weren't so exciting that... Right. Uh, a big cohort of people in studies benefited from whatever sort of intervention. Okay. Um, so they were looking to do the study um, in order to see how intuitive eating, you know, those kind of adaptive behaviors that go along with intuitive eating might help to to veer off the behaviors that people have learned to associate with food seeking uh, um, and that lead to, you know, increased weight gain, increased weight mm-hmm. retention if mm-hmm. you're somebody with gestational diabetes right. and help people rely more on their, their cues that their body's giving off yeah. and whether or not this may ward off diabetic risk. Okay, so what did they find? So they found that those people who had gestational diabetes who got the intuitive eating intervention, so a cohort of the people in the study yep. were told to you know eat intuitively, here's a package. And they were kind of taught how to do it. How to do exactly, it. Right. and some people weren't who had the intuitive eating intervention, had lower weight retention at one year postpartum. So whatever weight they might have gained, they were less likely to retain that weight Okay. Um, uh, at one year postpartum. They also had, I will say, a lower BMI. Um, that's, you know, they use that as mm-hmm. they tried to find a measure that they could, quote, objectively use on this pod. We understand that BMI is something that maybe we can use uh scientifically to get some sort of measure that but that if we as, were to start ascribing bmi to people individually it loses its significance sure. yes um you know so i'm very happy to critique that part of the study mm-hmm. we don't want to take that outcome and kind of just ascribe it to right. everybody that we yeah. see um uh so they also found that people had a lower fasting glucose and hba1c which we learned was the three-month average yep. uh, of your blood sugar um, which means that they basically found less, they they measured less sugar linked to blood in the bloodstream um, in the people who got the intuitive eating uh, inter- wow. uh, intervention, which means that they, um, of course, then are less likely maybe to have insulin resistance and less likely to have yeah. diabetic symptoms moving forward into the postpartum yeah. period. So why is this significant? Well, I, I think it's pretty obvious. A, a really big thing about... Um, Postpartum care might change, you know, if this study is found to be credible. You know, if you have, after you have a baby and someone presents with gestational diabetes, they might be pre-diabetic even. Yep. 
it's more evidence that might contribute to something changing in the clinical care system where like a nurse is going to come to you with a package. They already have the hospital has their package made with an intuitive eating, you know, information yeah, booklet or, or maybe some sort of workshop that or maybe some sort of like teaching tutorial that they have with the person. Also, I'm birth. hoping if you I mean, if you have gestational diabetes, I'm hoping you've been referred to a dietitian. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, is that the case? Could, Do you know? Is that very you, common? I think usually. Okay. Um, I don't actually. I, I haven't worked in the clinical environment enough to be 100% sure, but. I mean, I would, I think it would be up to the physician, but right. if it's, if you're a uh, good physician, if you're, physician, if you're a friendly, friendly physician, physician, I hope you're referring your patients with gestational diabetes right. um, to a dietitian. Who might then talk about intuitive eating or more likely to bring it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that that's also, um, I think it's also significant because in the postpartum period, there is so much pressure as well to not only with gestational diabetes but I'm probably even more so with gestational diabetes to like bounce back and yeah, to and yeah. to lose the weight and to and to start eating you know dieting and exercising again and and get back to where you were and and so I think that there's probably even more pressure after you know a diagnosis of gestational diabetes right. and hearing you know the risks associated with it or things like that um you know, there's probably more pressure to bounce back and to, to start dieting and sure. things like that. So I think that this is really significant as well in, in relation to that. Um, Absolutely. Because maybe, yeah, we can kind of prevent people from jumping right into dieting and, and actually realizing that maybe there are other strategies, intuitive Absolutely. eating strategies. Um, I mean, that even, can... most good scientists even agree dieting just doesn't work. Like... You can't mm -hmm. lose weight with dieting. And if you yeah. do, you're going to gain it back. Yeah. If that's what you're looking to do. Yeah. So, exactly. you know, having someone come up to you uh, in the postpartum period and your postpartum care and provide some sort of strategies. Yeah. Like maybe that's, that's something fantastic. moving forward that yeah. that might be implemented if the study's found to be credible. You know, this is really exciting. I was really happy to read this paper. Uh, so, but now, not to be a bummer, let's talk about some limitations of yes. a study like yeah, this. Yeah, we have to do that. Um, the one thing that, that's a really big limitation that we'll continue to focus on moving forward, I think, because it's uh, a big problem with uh, a lot of stuff clinically, is that there were only 117 subjects in okay. the study. So only half of those would have received the intuitive eating paradigm. Or I'm sorry, I can't actually remember the number. I don't want to say that, but only a portion of those would have received the intuitive eating intervention, right? Right. So, and more than that, it was in a population in Switzerland. So it wasn't like this was a collaboration between Switzerland, and the UK, uh, Somalia, and right, Argentina. It was one, yeah, it was one place at so, one time that looked so at probably one a number of people. Uh, you know, it's a certain demographic, right? A certain yeah. demographic. And this is this is an I limitation that we just can't look over. Uh, absolutely. I think it's uh, definitely a contribution to the field. Uh, and, and that's, I think, one of the biggest uh, strengths that this study has is hopefully it'll motivate more clinicians to start yeah. looking at an outcome like intuitive eating yeah. associated with other clinical factors, uh, because we definitely need more research into it. Uh, a long time, or maybe not that long ago, but uh, you know, a while ago, it used to be the case that if you had um, a hundred subjects in your clinical study. Wow, that's a lot of people. Like, and it's true. It's so hard to do clinical work because you know you have to get you know drive people out to the hospital, yeah, make sure they get yeah. there, uh, 
consent forms, hiring scientists, yeah. researchers, and clinicians to do the things, recruiting the people. Boy, I, yeah. I, I don't envy those people at all. I hope to be one of those people one day. <laughs> uh, but um, but it, it is very difficult. Now it's more the case that when you're looking at a clinical, when you're doing a clinical study and you want a big impact on the field. You're gonna have thousands of people in your study, right? Like right. you're gonna you're gonna get all kinds of demographics. You're gonna get, um, you know, whatever gender diversity, sure. uh, racial, socioeconomic, et cetera, ethnic diversity. You're gonna try to get all of that to you know absolutely really find try to find a, a true scientific, uh, um, you know, effect. Right. Anyway, so th- that is a big limitation of the study. Agreed. Um, that doesn't mean that it's it wasn't it didn't contribute something to the field. So, yeah, um, yeah. Maybe we, you know we'll, the next study is kind of short. Um, I love listening to anyway. you critique. You're so I just, I'm <laughs> learning so much. I, I love it. That. I love it. I love it. Okay, that. let's um, see the next one. The next study is from my notes on it are very short. I, it was a nice study. I I actually enjoyed reading the paper. At, okay, probably from a bias perspective as a queer man, uh, mm-hmm. this study focused on uh, men, and I thought. Anyway, we'll get into it. I think probably some of the people involved might have even themselves been queer. I'm assuming just because it's a study that focused on eating disorders. Yes. uh, And it recruited people who specifically might have mentioned that they have had trouble with disordered eating. Uh, And it's not a secret that I think like queer men maybe openly suffer from that more than... uh, uh, men who don't identify as queer. It's probably yeah. something that's more talked about, I would say, in yes. uh, under the queer umbrella rather than the 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 cis. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what's that word? You can be gay or you can be oh heterosexual. Oh my god, I forgot, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the word. Sorry. <laughs> you can be gay. You can be heterosexual. Never heard of it. <laughs> what? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay, so this study um, was by uh, Dr. Anna Bardone Cohn uh, and uh, their colleagues. Uh, okay. So th- the study was published in uh, the International Journal of Eating Disorders, and it's okay. called "Eating Disorder Recovery in Men: A Pilot Study," which to me is kind of like I really appreciate them putting something "a pilot study" down as part of the title because they're telling you like. We're just getting into this hunt. Sure. Like we've the science isn't there yet. Like right, right. we're just trying to figure this out. Like let me please dip my toe into the water. Yeah, like cut me a break. Exactly. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. exactly. Which I really appreciate, and I think um, it, I know it's just a very honest way of saying that it's a new field, and we're just getting into yeah. it now. Um, okay. So what did they what did they do? Um, they recruited men with eating disorder history. Uh, they collected data at uh, a baseline meeting and a follow-up. So this is what I was talking about earlier. They did a sort of test, retest. Uh, they had various parameters that they measured, including a bunch of questionnaires, like the like the intuitive eating, um, uh, what's it called? Scale, Scale sorry. Yeah. Um, that they considered as criteria for having um, eating disorders. So they did all the 
so they measured all those parameters to try to you know categorize people into full recovery from their eating disorder or not having recovered from their eating disorder or their disordered eating behaviors. Right. It, they also looked at behavioral recovery. Um, so they asked people about binge eating, vomiting, laxative use, fasting. Okay. And they also considered cognitive recovery nice. through surveys. They were asking about restraint from eating, concerns about eating, concerns about weight, concerns about shape. Nice. Okay. They basically asked a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of stuff, and they categorized people as recovered or not recovered yeah. from their eating disorder yeah. history uh, in their in their follow-up meeting. Okay, so... Um, Unfortunately, their sample size or in the field in scientific uh, methodology is called their N, yes. their number, yep. uh, was quite small. So there's only a total of 63 people participating in the study. So that's something we have to keep in mind moving forward uh, uh, as we yeah. understand the results. So, I mean, very briefly, what did they find? So their experimental sample showed um, recovery from disordered eating behaviors after after one year. So, sorry, I should rephrase that. People who showed recovery from their disordered eating behavior after one year were more likely to show higher levels of intuitive eating behaviors. So those people that, you know, of their own accord found, whether they went through counseling or whatnot, right. they didn't, you know, manage that in this study. Yeah. But what, whatever experiences they had in life that led to um recovery from disordered eating behaviors, those people were more likely in the retest to have uh, to show intuitive eating principles as wow. part of their life. Um, yeah, that's great. They used the intuitive eating scale, of course, uh, to look at this. So nice. those people, I wrote in, the, in my notes, like those people might be eating intuitively without even knowing it. Like maybe they didn't right. even they get didn't an intuitive know it was eating a thing. Yeah. intervention, but through their recovery process, they ended up picking up more adaptive behaviors that are more aligned with the principles sure. of intuitive yeah, eating. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think this is really, this is critical because we have to understand what adaptive behaviors look like, you know. And I think a good follow-up study to this study would be to, you know, those people find out what they did in their life that resulted mm -hmm. in that kind of adaptation. Mm -hmm. yeah. right? so what did you do? And I'm sure, like, what they looked into this, but made. more yeah. studies need to be done about, like, yeah, what kind of counselor did you go see? What kind of interventions did you what go through? What kind of help did you get? Exactly. What kind of pamphlets and things like that did, Absolutely. did you receive yeah exactly so uh, i thought that was very interesting uh, i thought it was interesting that it was done in men a lot of scientific work is done in men don't get me wrong i know but i, uh, like, I, I think <laughs> you know as part of like a, the nutritional field especially with looking at something like eating disorders that's not where yeah. I, I think rightfully so we we tend to focus on people who might identify as women it's a very you know Unfortunately, our diet culture it's stigmatizes women, yeah, it, yeah. so it ends up being uh, more talked about, which is good. I, I just thought it was interesting that um, here they focus on people who identified For as sure. men. Um, yeah, that was my little those roundup really of studies. Um, um, yeah. I liked those a lot, and I really like kind of going through them with you. Um, I learn a lot. And, and I just want to um, let you guys know that there are tons more studies um you know looking at um you know the the health 
benefits or or the outcomes of you know intuitive eating and i think there's over a hundred um i think it might be 120 now that's the thing is like yeah that number is like so small yeah i know i know it's small <laughs> but i think for for a, it's just starting a it's budding really, yeah. like topic Absolutely. um you know to have yeah you know a hundred studies that that look at it especially i don't know i feel like it's it's really difficult to do this work. I just yeah, hope scientists exactly. are motivated yeah. to keep doing it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That was uh, That was fun. I liked talking about up. that. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to, look, you know, reading more. Me too. I really am. Me too. Um, articles with you and, and learning more. We're and all I'm learning here. looking to learn here. more. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So I guess... We'll kind of wrap this one up too. Um, if you guys have any questions um, about what we talked about today or, you know, about more kind of research on intuitive eating, reach yes. out to us. Please we can, DM me we about can, everything I said Yeah, we wrong. can chat about things with you. That. We can send you information. Um, we really want to kind of start a conversation here. That's yeah. kind of our, that's our goal of the podcast is just to have a conversation about things. You know, we're all learning. Like I said, we don't. And we um, want to democratize the science a bit more. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, send us a message if you have questions or please, please. you know critiques or yeah, help is that me a word? be better. Critiques? Yeah. Um, okay, <laughs> and yeah, let's um, we'll wrap this one up because I think we are <laughs> we like to talk about intuitive eating. We do. Um, let's chat a little bit about what's been tasty this week. Well, I feel like I just talked forever, so I'd love okay. to pass the buck on to you and ask you what's been tasty <sighs> for you this week. Uh, you know what? <laughs> 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 I have been struggling the last couple of days to figure out what's been tasty for me this week because I feel like I only it's ever like so much pressure now. <laughs> Literally, I'm, I'm like in bed, like up and out, like oh, what's been tasty to me? <laughs> no, because all I ever say, I want to have something cool about like food and nutrition that I've come across this week yeah, that's been yeah. tasty edgy, to my edgy. brain this week, yeah, but. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like I, I and uh, all I ever think about is food I guess <laughs> I think that's fine but I, I also think like I said before um like at the start of this episode there's been a lot of negativity this week in I feel like in the nutrition and dietitian space that nothing's really like um nothing's really been tasty to me it's I felt a, a, lo a lot of confusion and a lot of I don't know, discouragement. So okay, yeah. what's been tasting me this week is those freaking Pillsbury holiday cookies. <laughs> 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 the ones that you just like, well, actually now they come pre-cut, but you used Whoa, to- Whoa, are you kidding? Yeah, you used to cut them from the like, you know, dough, the roll of dough. I'm not even impressed because all they needed to do was add another machine at the end of the conveyor belt. I'm happy they finally <laughs> did it. <laughs> yeah, so Pat, my partner, Pat, um, loves them and i love them too but he like loves them and we decorated for christmas last weekend and probably the week before that he started they look great by the he, way thank you yeah. he started looking for those cookies mm. and we looked for them on halloween too what are we talking about gingerbread man or no like, like the sugar they're not even sugar cookies. The they're ones. like the round ones that are just delicious okay i don't know what they are okay. um they usually had them like around Halloween too. Okay. And around Halloween, we looked for them, didn't yeah. find them. Um, so then Pat was on the hunt. <laughs> Those were reaching out. <laughs> yeah. Pat was on the hunt for Christmas ones. And, and we've been looking the last couple of weeks when we go grocery shopping, haven't been able to find them. Finally, I was at the grocery store 
two days ago and I actually just had to run in because there was a couple things I had to pick up for some recipes and there they were on display in the freezer section. Oh. And I was like, oh my God, Pat's going to be so excited. So I got two boxes and we made one box that night. And oh my gosh. Love that. They were delicious. I love that. I should have brought some. I have a lot. Um, so yeah, that's what's been tasty for me this I love week. That. Yeah. And it was just so exciting to finally find them because yeah, I feel yeah. like last year we didn't have that. Like we couldn't find them. Halloween, we couldn't find yeah. them. And then finally. They were there. That's the problem with things that only come out at certain times of the year. Like, I want... Okay. You know what? I'm not even going to promote the brand. I want I want cookies when I want them. Make the cookies available. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah, I agree. Um, That's like mini eggs. You know how mini eggs are available like year-round now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should do that like with the cookies. Yeah, exactly. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um... What's been tasty to me this week? Uh, uh, I posted about it on Instagram. I'm really trying to get more into my yes. like Middle Eastern, North African heritage, especially to do with food. And I, I talked about how I'm kind of anxious. I've talked about it on the pod even. I'm kind of anxious about getting into the recipes because I'm afraid of, of failing. And it's kind of emotional for me. Yeah. But I really do miss those foods. Um, so I thought an easy way to get into it would just be to like, get some grains that... Uh, you know, historically are just more like more popular in the MENA yeah. or Middle East, North yeah. African region. So I picked up some bulgur wheat and some couscous from nice. uh, the grocery store. And, you know, I don't know if people have ever had them. The texture is so light and fluffy. It's so delicious, you know, mm. if you make them with stock, vegetable stock or whatever. Um, That's a good idea. And it's so easy to cook, especially fine milled bulgur wheat and and just couscous. So easy to make the grain because all you have to do is add them to boiling water let it sit like you know take it off the take it off the element just let it sit for five minutes until it soaks up the water and you just fluff it with a fork and that's it like then your grain is made you don't have to like wait 15 or 17 minutes for the quinoa or wait however long for the rice or cook the pasta like it and it's literally no work like you put it in the boiling water and that's it i think i've only made bulgur once Mm -hmm. It was delicious. I just like, I don't know where I got it. I just had like a package of it. I don't know if my mom gave it to me or something. Um, and I remember I made it for my lunches. Like I added it to salads. Yeah. It was really good. Um, I've never they both actually... have such like a light, fluffy, but also kind of bouncy texture. Yeah, like, I've never that. made couscous though. I've, I've oh, really? eaten it, but I've never mm. made it. So I think they're yeah. both also perfect as like, uh, if you're looking to just, you know, diversify your grains, your pal- your grains. Yeah. like it's it's even like a fun way to diversify your grains in general, but also like really good as like substitute sushi rice. Not that you want to get rid of the rice. I'm not saying that, but yeah. just like as like a fun alternative, like just the texture that they have, they're really like moldable, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, cool. Without doing anything fancy, like you have to, I think you have to add like sugar and rice wine to rice to like sure. actually get it oh, to like okay. congeal stick. and like stick yeah. together. But like they're so, just like the way they are. Very cool. Um, yeah, so that was really nice for me, and um, I've been having that for lunches and for dinners. It's really nice to kind of start small, like yeah. when you have an endeavor, like whether it's, <clears throat> excuse me, um, eating, you know, eating well, or yeah, um, you know, adopting, yeah, healthier eating habits, or wanting to get Picking into certain cuisine. certain yeah, types yeah, of yeah. cooking. Yeah, um, starting small is something that we talk about a lot, um, you know, in counseling and things like that. Um, right. Taking things one, you know, one goal at a time or one little step at a time. Um, It's so much easier and I think just better for our confidence and 
and like you said, that fear of failure to just kind of start with one thing and then realize that, okay, that wasn't so bad. And then you can kind of do something else. Um, I think a big thing for me too is like, I really associate like family and like a busy kitchen and like everyone, like everyone helping to put a meal together with like Middle Eastern Mediterranean cooking. So I almost feel kind of lonely, like making the dishes. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So that's kind of been an I'll obstacle come make for some of the dishes I would with you. I would and I'll love drag that. Pat with me. I would love <laughs> so we can fill the that kitchen. would actually like fill my heart with yeah. joy cuz to me it's such like a like a communal thing. Like right. I love French food like uh, if the f- Fr- France tourism board like the French tourism board wants to send us out to France like baby I'm on that flight like <laughs> I'm forgetting everything like I'm coming I love Paris so much like I love the people. Everyone was so friendly to me there. I love the food so much. Like, it's such a big part for me. I love the the decadence of Mm. it. And that's something that at home, I have, for some reason, just like my mind can wrap my head around it and I can just like do it by myself and I can enjoy it for myself. Right. Something about that, like Middle Eastern cooking for me is like, I like want people to be around. I want to share it. You know what I mean? But if I want to make myself like a duck confit, like I'm very, very happy to have it by (laughs) myself. But if I make like, um, a feta, which is like a, a rice dish with um, uh, seasoned yogurt and and mm. pita bread and Yum. and sometimes meat and um, sounds good and it all like kind of gets like mixed together. I kind of like want to share it with people. Yeah. I don't know. It's just so different for me. Well, it's part of your like. Well, yeah, growing up. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, you, so yeah, I'm gonna hold you to that. I'm gonna invite you over. Yes. And yeah. we'll cook. Okay. I love cooking. I'll put with my cats you. in the spare room so you don't. Sounds sneeze. good. They have a Fuck cat tree cats. in there. <laughs> As what Tara said earlier. I did say that. Was, I love we're talking my about getting together and um, working on the podcast, editing, um, just doing some admin stuff. And he was like, I was like, we could go for coffee on Sunday. And he was like, we could come over. And then he was like, oh, wait, the cats. Fuck the cats. <laughs> <laughs> I love my kitties. I love my kitties. I'm allergic to cats. They have a very nice spare room. And because I'm a monster of a pet owner, I have a cat tree in there for them, litter boxes, food, water. It's, honestly, for them, it's like a treat to go hang out in the spare right. room. So they're very happy in yeah. there. Um, and I think they're very happy to allow you an allergen-free space whenever you want it at our place. That's nice of them. <laughs> <laughs> All um, right. Anyway, I think that's it. Please that's it. find us on any streaming platform, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. SoundCloud, SoundCloud. <laughs> even put out your ears into the into the air go outside put your ear out see if you can hear us <laughs> we might be talking <laughs> rate us five stars leave a comment subscribe find yeah, us we on hear from you. instagram and twitter at at hannah mcgee rd and uh at tark neuro and no bs nutrition pod too at no bs nutrition pod and I know it's a lot of following you have to do, but it is. But you only have to click it once. Yeah, I just one yeah. click. Yeah, yeah, it's so easy. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and we'd be very happy to hear from you because we want to learn, just like we were saying earlier. Yeah. All right. We should probably end this. I We've know. been talking forever. But I feel we like just I missed everyone to... already again. <laughs> I miss you. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye.